This is KJZZ, your news and information station in Phoenix and across Arizona. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from around the region. Thanks for listening for the week of February 19th, 2024. The state's largest emergency shelter program may soon have to cut services to people experiencing homelessness. Christina Estes reports on the latest financial challenges. Central Arizona Shelter Services, known as CAS, serves the Valley, and its biggest shelter is near downtown Phoenix. Thanks to an infusion of federal funds related to the pandemic and recovery, CAS was able to increase its beds from 470 to 650, but now cuts could be coming. We've had a 56% increase in security costs since 2019. CAS Executive Director Lisa Glow said between its adult shelter near downtown and its family shelter, the nonprofit is facing a $1.5 million shortfall this year, not only because of higher operating costs, she said, but because they didn't get any of the $40 million in grants from the state's Homeless Shelter and Services Fund. We wouldn't be here if we had had that uh, support from the state, but there was huge competition and, you know, a lot of worthy projects. Glow and CASA's board president, Bill Moreland, recently appeared before the Phoenix City Council asking for more money. We have every intention of going out to, again, private funders, private fundraising, foundations, and other municipalities. Vice Mayor Deborah Stark, whose district includes a family shelter operated by CAS, issued a funding call to other cities. If you don't want the shelters in your jurisdiction, then help us, because I am very grateful for what they're doing in Sunny Slope. In the past three years, Phoenix has earmarked $140 million for homeless outreach services and shelters. Councilwoman Keisha Hodge Washington mentioned last year's court-ordered cleanup near downtown, where hundreds of people have been living in tents. I think we all can sit here and agree that we we pride ourselves in cleaning up the area around the zone, making sure we were able to serve more of our unsheltered population, and it would be a disservice for us to have to, to walk that back and not be able to provide services in the scope that we have before. Council members agreed to increase the city's contract with CAS using more than $100,000 from the city's general fund. But a bigger financial issue beyond homelessness needs to be addressed, said Councilwoman Yasmin Ansari. This is, I think, a, a looming crisis that, um, you know, we all are aware of, but maybe the public is not as aware of. Phoenix has poured hundreds of millions into various programs, thanks to federal funding through the American Rescue Plan Act, often called ARPA. Those dollars will disappear by the end of this year. And I'm very concerned about what that means for the future of addressing homelessness and, and so many other amazing programs that our city has been able to, to start. City manager Jeff Barton said homeless services remain at the top of the ARPA spending list. As you know, for the past couple of months, we've been going through regular and reoccurring exercises to reallocate our ARPA funds to ensure that we maximize those dollars and to ensure that we spend those dollars where they're intended to be spent by priority. Even after getting $400 million in ARPA funds, Phoenix could find itself in a situation like Cass, facing a budget shortfall. That's because the state is changing the way it shares income tax with cities, and Phoenix will get $36 million less in the fiscal year that starts July 1st. And next year, when cities can no longer collect tax on residential rents, Phoenix will be out more than $40 million. 
Meanwhile, Lisa glows that Cass is compiling a list of ways to cover its $1.5 million gap. Cutting case management, the four case managers plus client advocates would reduce our staffing, which would mean those 600 to 650 people would not be staying in all day. They would leave for six to eight hours a day, which is how we used to do things. And there's some other things, facilities and things we would cut. They have until March 30th to come up with the cash. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. For more than three decades, natives from across the U.S. and Canada have flocked to the annual World Championship Hoop Dance Contest at the Heard Museum in Phoenix. As Gabriel Pietrazio reports, this popular spectator sport, with deep ties to the Southwest, has been elevated to another level for audiences, both in the arena and back at home. Welcome the dancers, welcome the dancers. We have 121 hoop dancers. It's the most they've ever had, across five divisions from tiny tots to seniors. And the youth category ages 6 to 12 had the highest turnout, comprising more than a third of all registrants. Performers are scored by a panel of five judges on a range of criteria, precision, showmanship, creativity, timing, rhythm, and speed. Contestants warp hoops, mostly made from plastic into shapes like animals, and convey stories as they move to the music. Hoops are also for healing, both for competitors and spectators. More than 6,300 in attendance, says Master of Ceremonies Dennis Bowen Sr., a Seneca from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. For the next two nights... You're going to hear these songs in your dream. (laughs) Aside from shattering records, this weekend also marked another milestone for this iconically indigenous sport, post-dance interviews. Hello, everybody. We're back. We have our next guest with us. Can you give us a quick introduction? I'm from the Pueblo Puake, and... I'm 21 years old, and I've been dancing for about 13 years. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience? Be you, and don't be afraid to be indigenous. Mic drop. (laughs) All right, y'all, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. That's Melody Davis of the Fort Mojave Indian Tribe appearing on a live stream of the Gila River Broadcasting Corporation, or GRBC, during the final rounds of competition on Sunday. And her guest is Josiah Enriquez from New Mexico, who later faced off with Talon Reed Duncan of Scottsdale for the world title in the adult division. Last year, Duncan lost the championship by a single point. This time around, he tied. Yeah, tiebreaker today. What's going on here? Yes. That's Sean Martinez, a Navajo voice that might be familiar to fans of the Phoenix Suns and Mercury. He's the senior director of live presentation for both franchises at the Footprint Center and Lewis's broadcast partner. Thank you to the dancers for sharing their story. Absolutely. It's definitely good to get to know the dancers. This was such a beautiful day. The idea to invite the pair came from Michael Webb, a Chickasaw and Chicano new hire as the Heard Museum's public engagement manager. I'm not very good with dates at all, you know, birthdays, but for some reason, hoop in February is burned into my brain. He began coming to the championships before he turned 10. Now he's in charge of organizing that same contest. And piloting post-dance interviews, Webb says, is a huge step toward hopefully one day incorporating live play-by-play commentary. As if this were uh, the World Series or the NBA Finals. But for hoop dancing, 
in the following years, we're looking to expand that to truly be full commentating where a representative can get into what formations the dancers are providing. Even signature moves. It's something they invented, or that's a nod to Tony Duncan. That's a nod to the Cinqua family. That's a nod to even Tony Whitecloud. Of the Jemez Pueblo in New Mexico, who turned hoop dancing into a spectator sport during the 1930s. Today, he's remembered as the founder of modern hoop dance. Now this tradition is evolving for the future. It was the beginning of us as a brand. Clarice Thiago Jones is the executive director at GRBC, and her team has exclusively produced the competition since 2019. To this day, we call it the most perfect production we've ever done. Since then, their 30-hour-plus live production has slightly changed, says Thiago Jones, because of Sunday's post-dance interviews. That takes a little bit extra communication. It's not too much. But she believes the possibility of play-by-play coverage can be a notable difference for fans around the globe. It's going to provide more context and I think probably just make it more interesting for the viewers. Stay tuned because they're going to crown the champions here real quick. You'll see that coming up. Our new world champion, Josiah Enriquez. Gabriel Pietrazio, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In politics news. Republican lawmakers and Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs are scheduled to begin budget negotiations as the state contends with a massive budget deficit. Wayne Shutsky reports from our politics desk. Lawmakers have advanced hundreds of bills at the legislature this week, but very few dealt with the state budget, even though that's the only legislation they are required to pass every year by the state constitution. Arizona House Speaker Ben Toma blamed the governor's office for dragging its feet in budget negotiations. We've finally got an agreement from the governor to meet on the budget at this point, um, which, which, which should hopefully happen this week. So we've been ready to work for some time. Budget analysts at the legislature project the state's budget deficit will reach $1.7 billion by July. The proposal Hobbs presented in January included a series of cuts to balance the budget, including shrinking the state's school voucher program, a non-starter with Republican lawmakers. Wayne Shutsky, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. No matter what type of movies you enjoy, over the next several weeks, Arizona has hundreds of offerings, whether that's in the Phoenix metro region or even Sedona. Tom Maxidon reviews some of the highlights from three of the longest-running film celebrations in Arizona, as well as a bonus take from this director's cut. The Greater Phoenix Jewish Film Festival launched last weekend. It offers nearly two dozen feature-length films, which reflect past, present, and future themes of Jewish life worldwide. One of those is a 2023 Israeli comedy drama film titled Seven Blessings. It's actually about an unusual Jewish custom that involves family having dinner together after a wedding for the following seven nights. That's not the unusual custom. The unusual custom comes out in the film. And there's some humor and you feel like you're sitting at the table. That's Trisha Baran, co-executive director of the festival. She says the co-writer of the film, Eleanor Sella, will be in the Valley this weekend to speak about it and also her upcoming project related to the October 7, 2023 attack on Israel by Hamas. All films are screened in a theater setting this year after experimenting with hybrid in-home offerings during the pandemic.
Now in its 30th year, the Sedona International Film Festival opens this weekend. And there's a comedic irony to its longevity. We're not silly enough to not think our landscape and our beautiful Sedona isn't a draw for people. You know, you come to Sedona, it's just magical and beautiful and stunning. And what do we do? We put you in a dark theater. That's Pat Schweiss, who has directed the festival for 20 years. He says there are a few documentaries by Arizona-based filmmakers on the screening schedule. The bread and butter of the festival, though, is a smorgasbord of fictional features like For When You Get Lost. What are you doing on your road trip? I'm going to fix my family. Alone? No, I'm going to go get Cammy. Is he dead? Do you think this is a vacation? I'm not interested in some beer version of Sideways with my estranged sisters. My father is dying. My sister's a bitch. I'm having a beer. The film centers on June Stevenson, who drags her estranged sisters on a road trip up the Pacific coast in order to make amends with their difficult father before he dies. June is played by Jennifer Sorensen, who wrote the film and will appear at the festival. According to her, it's a dramedy with roots in her own life story. Even when my father did die in real life, I saw all the comedy that was going on around at the same time, being devastated that my father was dying. My favorite thing to say is that the coroner who came in to take my dad's body away, which is very morbid, his name was Dick Fakama. And as much as you can prepare yourself for death, you can't prepare yourself for Dick Fakama coming in the room. Next month, the Worldwide Women's Film Festival opens in the Valley. Women have a very different point of view than men, let's be honest. And we want to showcase that and give women recognition for what they contribute to the film industry. That's Kim Henneke, president of the festival. She says films submitted for inclusion need two things. One is a woman behind the film in a principal role. Director, cinematographer, producer, screenwriter. And then we also need a woman-driven story. And like other festivals, there's a broad offering of genres and styles as well as some standouts Henneke is endeared to. One is The Weight of a Feather. It's a documentary. It's about Native Americans and birds. Everything on this earth, be it a boulder, a river, a tree, a canyon, all have a spiritual essence. Animals play a huge part in everything that we do, culturally, socially, emotionally, physically. We all live together. We all live in the same place. We all have to share it. We just flock together like a bunch of birds. What can I say? If you can't make it to one of the upcoming festivals, there's plenty of content from local talent available to stream at home. Like Hellhounds, a new release by Valley-based filmmaker Robert Conway. It was a really fun script to write. Uh, popcorn movie is what I call it. You know, like it's going to be fun. It's biker werewolves. There's some pretty disturbing, you know, imagery, pretty hardcore, dramatic stuff going on within a premise that is easy to kind of laugh off, which is almost intended because despite that heavy subject matter, my goal was to make biker werewolves. How much more Saturday night, you know, mindless <laughs> entertainment can you get? Tom Maxidon, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's been a busy week and you may need a little distraction. Try KJZZ's Play. We just launched a puzzle page. It's got a daily and weekly puzzle. You can share it with family, friends, and colleagues. But don't do what I did and share it with your boss. She's so competitive. Give it a go at play.kjzz.org.
In education news, Arizona is seeing billions of dollars coming in from leading-edge technology companies. Those companies will create tens of thousands of jobs, but there may not be enough educated Arizonans to fill them. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd has details. The presidents of Arizona's three public universities got together this week to talk about the state of higher education. One of the biggest problems discussed was that while the state's economy ranks among the top in the country, Arizona is among the bottom in educational attainment. Northern Arizona University President Jose Luis Cruz Rivera says seven out of ten high-paying new jobs require some type of post-secondary education. So unless we figure out how to create the conditions for more Arizonans to have access to quality educational opportunities, and benefit from this booming economy, then we're really not living up to our full potential. He says that's why they've created a universal admissions program where no student who applies will get a letter of rejection. Rather, NAU will offer a new pathway through a community college with guaranteed admission once they're ready. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. From the show this week, Sandra Day O'Connor's son says he doesn't support Arizona's plan to build a statue in her honor. Here's co-host Mark Brody. I was contacted by the staff of Senator Amy Klobuchar, who chairs the Senate Rules Committee and its subcommittee. Uh, She's also chairman of the subcommittee, the Library Committee, which controls the Library of Congress and a lot of things on the Capitol campus, including Statuary Hall. Uh, She and a number of other uh, federal legislators in both houses thought it would be nice to honor both Mom and Ruth Bader Ginsburg with statues to land somewhere in the Capitol complex. In the final form of the bill, they thought, how nice if we were to put them on either side of the entrance doors to the historic Supreme Court chamber that's in the Capitol building. And um, Senator Klobuchar's staff contacted me initially, and then I had a number of conversations with her. She's very genial, uh, talked about this. And we spoke often about the symbolism of doing that project with the two of them together because they came from very different political backgrounds and sort of side of the aisle things, but yet went to law school at the same time in the same era when they were like the only ones in their law school class. You know, mom had two other women in her class, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, similar thing at Columbia, almost none. They both had fabulously humorous, entertaining husbands. We're so polarized. The country is so divided. How lovely to have these two women from totally different backgrounds and political leanings who ended up being such good friends and having such mutual respect and admiration for one another be posed together. And you were pretty involved, not just with conversations, but you were pretty involved with the process of like seeing, sort of helping see the bill through the entire process, right? Well, not once it was, you know, kind of filed and on its way in earnest through hearings and so forth. But I participated in drafting the bill in the sections that kind of went into mom's backstory, okay. you know, her bio, why is she important, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I took some pride in having contributed to that. And, you know, it was a very nice, pleasant experience, you know, where my participation was encouraged and appreciated the whole way. So when a reporter called me a few weeks ago to talk about the statue project, wanted comment on the statue project. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of old news. That was, you know, signed into law two years ago. He goes, no, the new one. What new one? Well, there's one in the state legislature, you know, to get a statue made of your mom to go to Statuary Hall. And I said, 
you know there's a federal one doing exactly the same thing. Why, why would there be a second one that's so redundant? So who's, who's behind this? So anyway, I, I found out and I contacted the sponsor of the bill. I said, did you know about the federal one? And then, you know, our history on what was said exactly during that conversation has, you know, kind of got spun a little bit in different versions. But I got the sense that uh, maybe the bill sponsor didn't know and uh, maybe would be willing to kind of delay this or walk it back until the federal statue had a chance to be commissioned, designed, sculpted, cast in bronze and installed. And let's see if it's nice. If it's a really nice sculpture, you know, life-size bronze in the Capitol, that statue already fulfills the mission. Arizona has their gal in the Capitol at a prominent location with a, you know, nicely funded half-million-dollar budget statue. What's not to like? Yeah. Apparently, what's not to like is we didn't send it there. And so that's kind of where... I ended up kind of on a different side opposing the bill because I, I thought it was redundant. And perhaps if the legislature here wanted to honor mom, they could think of another way to do it that wasn't already being done by somebody else. Well, so what is the timeline on the federal statue? Because as we know, the federal government doesn't always move super quickly on things. If you'd asked me two years ago, by spring of 2024, where would they be in the process? I figured they would have already hired the artist and she'd be, you know, playing with the clay in a studio or he would be playing with yeah. the clay in a studio somewhere. I didn't anticipate how slowly the wheels of federal government turn. Um, it gets assigned to the architect of the Capitol that controls all the buildings. One of his tasks on this job is can the floor outside the entrance to the whole the old Supreme Court chamber, handle the load of these two bronze statues. That's part of their scope of work. And they aren't going to award a statue commission until they know that they've got a safe place to put it. So there's been a lot of that going on. But I learned, uh, once I heard about the Arizona bill, I called to get a status report, and I learned that the architect of the Capitol is handing this off now to the National Endowment for the Arts, okay. the NEA. They will have a contract with the architect of the Capitol to write the RFP, hasn't even been written yet, put it out, solicit proposals from artists, and commission. So slow moving, yeah. which is part of why maybe the legislature here didn't know because it's still churning very slowly through the process. So you mentioned maybe the legislature, if they wanted to honor your mom, could do something else. Anything specific that you think that money could maybe go toward? M mom only passed in December. And I used to watch her interact with people. And it, as, as the years went on, it was so funny. People would people that really knew her well, that were really comfortable around her, used to laugh about how bossy she was, <laughs> but in a nice way, all right? Um, we, we heard a lot of stories back in Washington in December during the memorial service week of, of clerks talking about how they'd come to mom for advice and they'd come away, you know, where mom would sort of end up you know, saying, it's your choice. But then they felt like sort of there was really only one choice <laughs> after they had heard her out. And it was your mom's choice. And it was mom's choice, you yeah. know. And, and, and they said, but she was always right. So we were good with it. And, and so she was bossy in that way. And I've seen conversations like that with close friends as well as total strangers. And so if the legislature had gone to her and she wasn't, impaired with dementia, she would have said, well, they're already doing one. 
why why would you do another one? They're going to do a perfectly good statue. I have confidence in the Senate and the architect of the Capitol. Heck, they maintain the Supreme Court for the justices and and the NEA and, you know, they'll get, you know, quality people bidding on this. They'll have their pick of a bunch of really accomplished artists. I'm sure they'll do a really nice job and they have lots of money to finish it. Why do we need another one? You know what you could do? You could improve civics education in Arizona or do something else that would solve some problem or really raise our game. I was a, every institution I ever belonged to or volunteered for, I felt my role was to make it better for the next people who followed us. Let's do that instead. And so when this bill went to its first committee hearing at the legislature, I told them that's what she would say. And their answer was sort of both sides of the coin. They said, we really want to do this statue anyway. Sorry you're not thrilled. And we can do something with civics or some other thing to honor your mom too. There's nothing that says by doing a statue, we can't do that. So, you know, okay, that's fair. The measure in the Arizona legislature would raise private money. It wouldn't be state money. The state uh, had would have no role in raising the money. Right. They partnered with an O'Connor Institute, which is a, an organization that was sort of formed to honor mom, uh, that the family is not on the board of directors. You know, we're not, we don't make any decisions for them. But they volunteered in this bill to take the lead on raising the money to pay for the statute. It's not right. going to be done on taxpayer funding. Right. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Scott O'Connor. Scott, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And finally, in Fronteras News. The owners of a uranium mine just south of the Grand Canyon have embarked on a messaging tour of Arizona to counter what they say are inaccurate portrayals of the mine. From the Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Michel Morisco reports on their meeting. Energy Fuels Resources owns the Pinon Plain Mine just south of Grand Canyon National Park in the Kaibab National Forest. Tribes, including the Havasupai and the Navajo, as well as environmental groups, have long protested the mine. This week, the Coconino County Board of Supervisors passed a resolution demanding the mine be closed. Curtis Moore is with Energy Fuels. He argues the mine has bipartisan support and approval from U.S. regulatory agencies. Administrations on both sides of the aisle, uh, you know, whether it's a Democrat president or a Republican president, were right there alongside us defending this mine. With uranium selling at $90 a pound, Energy Fuels expects to produce more than 1 million pounds of uranium a year. Michel Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.